At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 138, The Arrow of Death. The last 300 years in Wales had not been good ones. The consequences of spreading plague, the ambitions of various kings, princes, and nobility had combined with Wales's cl- difficult climate to make for a potent and terrible mix, one that left many homes abandoned and others missing several members with little to show for it. As we reach the mid and late parts of the 15th century, Wales continues to suffer from a number of problems. The first is the arrival of disease from a number of sources. Along with the Black Death, which returned often over the next few hundred years, many other diseases made impact in Northern Europe. Typhus, smallpox, malaria, dysentery, tuberculosis, scurvy, rickets, and the much more common but equally troubling influenza continued to make times difficult. It was estimated in this period that Wales had a population around a quarter of a million people. Reliant as they were on the agrarian life and maritime lifestyles, much of Wales resided, as most of the world did at this period, on the brink of bad harvests and starvation. It was said that two bad harvests in succession would spell disaster, first because it meant lack of food for the farmers, but it would also mean problems across the entire entire chain of the economy for that food. Keep in mind that taxes were largely paid in food rents, even at this point, and for most of the population, this was always going to be the case. So as scarcity would happen, prices would then escalate the costs uh, for a plow, a hoe, for a cow, for a horse would escalate because the cost of apples went up at the market, or the cost of grain went up because of the drought that happened that year. The average everyday people would then, of course, pay the price for this because their nutrition levels would drastically drop. In homes that had many hands, these were needed for the harvest and to grow crops and to raise animals, but when you had a scarcity of food and many people to eat that food, this would also affect their ability to eat properly, to meet their needs, and to be able to deal with the consequences of those bad harvests. Some obviously might be able to sell other services. Maybe you can do some blacksmithing. So then you head into the village or the town with some nails and hope to gain some food to feed everyone. But if your skills are built more around one specific talent, likely your only recourse is to find labor jobs or possibly you begin to sell yourself and your abilities to your lord to get help through these difficult times. Keeping in mind that most Europeans in this period would work six days a week, likely sun up to sundown, with only Sunday and specific holy days as possible times off during the spring 
summer, and harvest times in the autumn. Now combine bad harvest, missing men, possibly women and children due to wars, add famine into the mix, and you have an area rife with disease, likely easily going to be taken out, or at least some havoc will be wreaked in these situations, and few outside the noble classes could afford this situation. And once disease started to spread, even the upper classes faced the cost of doing business with people who in their daily lives were exposed to these diseases. Medicine in the medieval era, as I've pointed out in the past, it, and especially during the episode number 107, which discussed the plague, this medieval medicine was rudimentary at best and disastrous at worst. Folk medicines and highly educated but poorly practical understanding of the body ruled a great deal of the universities and the medical establishments of the period. And without the basics of microbiology, their ability to understand what was happening and how to fight it were limited to the very specific tactics, which some might succeed, but a lot were of dubious result. With starvation, loss of livelihood, and general destabilization, many Welsh people started to emigrate. First, some of these would move into the marches, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, as well as to the bigger centres, such as the towns and villages throughout Wales, but, and specifically the ones that are being built by English lords, which one of the preconditions of which was to keep the Welsh out of these said towns, but others would move to the border cities and to the towns on the English side, and in some cases never return to Wales. In Stuart and Georgian periods, the Welsh population would continue to spread out even to colonies across the world, which we'll talk about in more depth sometime later. London would also become the centre of Welsh expatriates, as the capital would continue to see their numbers moving and looking to make their fortunes there. Obviously at a center which is the capital for not just the country but also a capital of industry and finance, it would make sense that this would happen. Death, economic stagnation, and exodus of population meant that the 15th century recovery of population, at least in Wales, was stunted until the midway point, and even then it was still considerably lower than in England. For the average citizen during this period, much of their diet would have been nutrient-poor. Life would have been a hard scramble even in the good times. Average meals were reliant on heavy diets of starches, bread especially. An average peasant in Europe, for example, in this period ate about two to three pounds of bread and grain per day, including up to about a gallon of low-alcohol ale. Obviously, because water supplies could be corrupted quite often, ale became sort of a, a water substitute. Grains such as wheat, rye, oats, and barley were boiled into porridge and made into bread, and rarely these meals included meat, which was expensive, or save for times when it was more difficult to store vegetables, such as in the winter months. Though to be fair, in this period, many relied on lentils and fish to provide protein so they weren't without protein. It was more the fact that what they had was minimal and specific and probably pretty boring, let's be honest. In an era before the potato, grain was king 
of the medieval table. For example, two and a half pounds of rye bread is, was about 3,000 calories, and a gallon of ale was an additional 1,500 calories. This high calorie content is good if you need to do a lot of exercise, which of course you would do in these environments. Most of the poor were doing manual labor throughout their day, and thus this would be a point of necessity. But nonetheless, they would also have very minimal amounts of fresh vegetables and fruit, which were harder to come by, especially out of season, of course, and in some cases were thought to be a part of what was spreading the disease. And so some people didn't even trust them and would cook them, which of course, as we know, in some extents takes the nutrients out of the meal. Water would also become an issue in towns and cities as they would become increasingly polluted, but most of Wales at this time, that was hardly an issue. The largest town in Wales by the 17th century was Carmarthen, which was barely around 2,000 people. Compare this to Bristol at this point, which had grown over 10,000 by that stage. You can see that the Welsh countryside still dominated the daily lives of almost everyone, and much of the secondary economy was built around servicing those needs. That would happen, of course, in the market towns, both in England and the English market towns in Wales, where product had to be purchased and replacements for tools and different things like that. Blacksmiths, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, and what have you would be few and far between and not exactly an easy ride to get to. In some cases, it could take a day or two to get to a local town or village marketplace which would have these products. So for a lot of people, you would have to develop at least some rudimentary skills in these areas to be able to repair your plow, to deal with issues with tools, to deal with broken bones in case of accidents and things of that nature, stuff that would, of course, come up during your lifetime. So for a lot of people, there would be a sharing of these skills. You know, neighbors would work with neighbors. In all likelihood, you would have someone in the local community who knew how to deal with a broken bone and so they would then help their neighbors in those circumstances to at least set the bone and keep it safe enough because you just couldn't rely on someone coming from the local town to do any of this at least not in a time period that would be useful which is part of the reason why you have a cottage industry of people who are traveling from village to village, town to town, city to city, all across Europe in this period, carrying goods to, for sale and trying to eke out livings that way. These problems of this rural life and stagnant population numbers would continue to haunt Wales at least until the 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution altered one of the most important aspects of life in the world at that time, which was built around an agrarian lifestyle. Once the Industrial Revolution comes along and people start to migrate to cities and to towns in droves, in part to take up the jobs that were paying better in those cities and towns, suddenly the agrarian lifestyle starts to lose its luster and interest. And because of that, we start to see mass urbanization going on across the world. 
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. But that's still a ways to go when you're in the 15th century. And another aspect of this that was growing was an intermarriage between the Welsh and English populations that lived in Wales. While noble classes on both sides had taken wives and husbands from each other for the past 300 years at least, and of course most of the border towns likely had this crossover as well, with the advent of English market towns in Wales and the moving in of English populations into the marches and in the principality meant that there were more and more mixing of various classes and more and more mixing between all sorts of cultural ideals. And so intermarriages, of course, would start to happen, even as both cursed the other for various faults. There were a number of marriages which overcame this barrier, mostly for political and economic reasons, but possibly even for romantic ones as well. So while the Welsh were, in quotes, banned from English towns in Wales, they were marrying into them instead. Increasingly, the names in the towns of the population who settled there, at least in the marches, carried more and more Welsh names. So much so that by 1543, half of the names on the tax roll for Swansea were unmistakably Welsh in origin. Also, in the farms in the south, which were once in the grip of Norman settlers, these were now starting to see more Welsh populations move in, as the arrow of death, as the plague was sometimes called by the poets, in that moment of grief and sorrow that it caused for these communities, it also allowed 
opportunity for those that were willing to take it because, of course, these lands were vacated because of this and people lost their livelihoods and had to move or in some cases were impoverished and couldn't remain in those locations anymore. And as that would happen, or maybe the family was childless because they lost their children due to the disease, so they couldn't keep these places once they themselves passed away, they would then fall to new people, and these people would then take advantage of this. And so all of a sudden we would see this migration of people across the entire length of the principality and the marches. Everything changed dramatically in part because of this. And this is something that we've talked about before, that the plague and its successing problems created opportunities for some, while creating, obviously, sorrow and problems for others. These things would be important for Wales going forward, as it would throughout all of Europe at this time. The economy of this 100 or 150 years was very different from the one that had been before it, and the ability to move up and down the economic ladder was probably as good as it would be until the Industrial Revolution. And of course, all in the farms in the South, which were once in the grip of Norman settlers, suddenly saw more Welsh populations move in as this arrow of death caused them to be vacated and they could actually take them over if you were willing to be mobile and ambitious enough to accept the the risk. The return of these Welsh populations to places like the Vale of Glamorgan, as an example, in the middle of the 15th century also worked to change those former Anglo-Norman families that stayed in the area. Slowly but surely, these families, such as the Tubervilles, the Stradlings, the Butlers, and others, became followers of Welsh poets, conversant in the culture, and in some cases even the language of Wales, to the point where they were no more immigrants or invaders, but settled within the Welsh milieu. In this period, the Vale would actually return to being largely Welsh-speaking, and would remain so for 200 years, which shows both the resiliency of the language, but also how the accommodation of both communities led to a new understanding of the culture and a willingness to see eye to eye, at least to that extent. Obviously, there are examples of English and Welsh friction, nationalism, tensions on ethnic lines, and continued discrimination, but it does show that there was a path out of the worst of the issues, which was starting to become much more accepting and much more willing to see that. This will become important as we get into the Tudor period, where you have a line of English kings that claim descendancy from Wales, and how that would continue to build up a change in the perspective of the English on the Welsh. Not a full, complete 180 from where they were before, but at least a modified understanding of who they were and what they were. As we mentioned previously, when we talked about the recovery of the Welsh economy post-Glindur, there was concurrently a rise in the middle class and the elites who came from Welsh origin. During this period of change, these elites started to become very interested in their genealogy as proving your lineage to old Welsh ancestors, for them, proved to be important. 
as a way to link them to an ancient past and also to kind of gloss over their maybe not so exciting and wealthy beginnings. In part, this came from this rise of this upper class, which had no links to older nobility in Wales, many of whom had fallen off to the side due to either backing Glyndwr or waning fortunes during this time of illness and economic insecurity. The Welsh barons who had for years and years under the English, if not thrived, at least survived, started to fall by the wayside in part because they couldn't keep up with the new economy. The new elites needed to show that they had links to the Welsh past and create for themselves something to be proud of, and in a way to create a, a way to say that they were justifiably given what they had because they had just the same links to the old kings that anybody else had. And as has been the case since the Roman arrival, the Welsh leaned on their descendancy from Troy as a sign of their status as this ancient nobility. Once again, Geoffrey of Monmouth working his magic in the historical eye of these people got them to believe in this concept that they were from this noble line of Pritan and this concept of being British and in that fashion was something that the Welsh relied on, at least these particular Welsh people, to sort of pinpoint their pride. I mean, you might be a farmer's son from an area north of Carfilly, but now you could point to a lineage that went back to the kings of ancient times. Of course, the key to these Welshly landholders' rise was not some ancient lineage that arguably all Welsh could claim, but rather the skill, ambition, and ability to make money any way possible in order to accumulate enough to overcome the barrier of not being a relative of the prince of Doithbarth or Gwyneth. And in the flux of the 15th century, making their fortunes and their rise in status was more important and was much more critical to these nouveau riche than the status of ancient times and ancient days. But even as these men and women would rise in status and make their fortune, others would struggle to feed themselves, and what they could find and were able to get a hold of was difficult at best. In some cases, it meant making hard and sometimes heartbreaking choices for your family when you have so many mouths to feed, but not enough ability to feed them. And quite a number of children would end up in situations where they were homeless, where they would be sent away to deal with the economic realities of life. So keep in mind that this was an era where some people lived hand to mouth, some people went literally begging, and others became wealthy, rich, and able to do and become much higher up along the food chain of the English nobility and the Welsh nobility. So all of these things are going on at once, which obviously has some linkages to what is going on currently, but, but the brink of poverty in this era is very different than the brink of poverty in our era. And the height of wealth in this era is not the height of wealth in our era. So while you can make some comparisons, they are certainly not direct comparisons. And I would never 
advise doing that. But by the same token, for the average Welsh person living a normal life, this would be a very edge of existence kind of a life. You would be working 12 hours days at least. You would be working six days a week. For some farmers, of course, they would have to work on Sunday because there'd be cows to milk, chicken eggs to gather, duck eggs to gather, or whatever else you might have. So you're always looking for ways of feeding your family and keeping your economic choices available to you. So, and these are things that will continue to be the case right up until, I would argue, the last century. And I think that's something you have to keep in mind, that an agrarian society is always just around the corner from the latest massive weather event causing starvation and more and more trouble. And of course, this is also a time period when the weather has changed and it's gotten colder. And so the winters are more harsh. Rain is starting to fall more. So you don't get necessarily the same growth seasons you had in past. So all of these things are kind of working against you. Meanwhile, you have these diseases, these plagues and these outbreaks happening constantly to eat away at your population, to eat away at your ability to survive as a person and a family. And that struggle was constant. And you see it in their writings, in their poetry, in their storytelling. And yet through it all, people, as always, made their way through and continued to survive and continued in some cases to thrive. So with that, I will suggest an end to the episode. And uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me also either on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. You can join our community there. Or you can also follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. And if you feel so inclined to become a member of my Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash Welsh History. And I thank everybody who has become a member there recently and throughout the entirety of this podcast and the setting up of Patreon. You continue to help me fund this podcast and continue to help me make this podcast possible. So as always, my appreciation, my respect continues to go out to all of you. And thank you once again, and we will talk to you later. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.